And come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, do keep that open in front of you. And you can find a sort of uh, outline of the sermon inside the yellow uh, service sheet with some space to write notes as well, if you're after that. Well, my question to you this morning is, how does what we do here this morning, Sunday morning, how does it transform the rest of our week? How is it that meeting together like this changes our lives? When you think about uh, the sort of things that might happen at a weekend that can really affect your week, uh, a football fan, maybe a Southampton fan, uh, can be turned up to work Monday morning absolutely miserable uh, because of the uh, relegation. So I don't know if you've got friends or colleagues uh, really into uh, things like Love Island. Their favourite contestant wins the one that they've been backing all the way uh, through, and uh, they're absolutely buzzing about it Monday morning, aren't they? The things uh, that we do and the things that we love really can affect and bring about change uh, in our life, in our mood. But how is it that what we do here on a Sunday morning, how does that change our lives? But maybe you're here today because you're desperate for change in your life. You're wondering, will church on a Sunday morning, will it give me an answer? Maybe uh, you're here sceptical, doubting that at uh, church, anything that I hear at church, could that even make a difference in my life? I doubt it. Maybe you're today uh, here wondering and worrying that Sunday doesn't seem to make a difference to my Monday morning. I seem to be a hypocrite. I come here, sing, listen, chat, go home, and nothing seems to change. Maybe you're sort of looking back rose-tinted lenses at a time when your relationship with God seemed so tight that God brought real change in your every day. It just doesn't seem to be doing that for you right now. The answer to these thoughts, these worries, is far better than we could possibly imagine, and yet far less dramatic than we might realise. How does what we do here Sunday morning change our everyday and transform our week? 
it's far better than we could possibly imagine, and yet far less dramatic than we realise. And the answers are found in this psalm, 95. It's a, a poem, a song, a praise to God. And it's divided, really, into two halves. And so, at first, we get an instruction. Sing to the Lord. That's the first point on our outline today. Verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The invitation is there to the people of God. Come, sing. Join in. It invites us to join in with the loud, noisy celebration of God. Other translations of this put joyful noise as shout aloud. Shout aloud. Verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us shout aloud to him with songs of praise. The people of God, therefore, are to join together in their singing. Praising of God. He is the rock. A rock of salvation, this psalm puts it. A high rock that is difficult to access is therefore a place of refuge. Saying God is high, inaccessibly high, safely high, so that when we shelter in him, no evil reaches us. If we're with him in his presence, then we are rescued, made safe. In fact, coming into his presence, verse 2, is literally coming before his face. It means being in the personal presence of God. Do you realise that if you're a Christian here today, that's what you do? But when you praise the Lord, you are in his presence. They're joining together in song, together, because God saves. That is what we are doing, making a joyful noise. There was a pastor who was once uh, travelling along, and uh, he got caught in like a dreadful storm. And so he uh, sought shelter in a rock, a kind of gorge, um, from this uh, storm. And in that rock, sheltering from this storm, he penned for him, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It's like saying with all of this world, all of the uh, things out there in our week, the uh, dreadful sin, the suffering, the temptation, whatever it is, it's like a storm. But God is the rock of salvation. The one who rescues, in whom we are saved. The invitation is there. Come and sing to the rock of salvation. But why do we want to join in with this worship? Apart from the fact that he's a rock of salvation. This singing, this shouting, this joyful noise. The answers are in verses 3 to 5. Can we spot the reason? The God of verse 1 is the same God who, in verse 3, the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In our world, there are many, many people with many, many gods and goddesses. And just as when the psalmist was writing, many of these are just created by human imagination. Very real in people's thoughts and worship, but not objectively real. And so they would not exist if these people did not exist. But the God of the Bible is above all 
gods. You say, well, this is, sounds like an exclusive claim. Now, you worship the one true God and no other gods are legitimate or real. That's the Bible's answer. Yes. It's actually taken up by Jesus when he says that the only way to the Father is through him. He is the rock of salvation. He's a great king above all gods. Verses 4 and 5, they show his kingship over all creation. And with these two pairs of extremes, the Bible uses extremes in this way. Uh, Think uh, Genesis uh, with creation, God created the heavens and the earth. Or Revelation where God is described as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Here, we get verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. So the very lowest depths of the ocean, unknown to humans. We discover deep fishes there all the time, don't we, that we've never discovered before. He is the God of the depths. He made it, he knows it. The very heights of the Himalayas, every inch and everything in between. No part of creation is outside God's authority. So there's nothing so low that it escapes his notice. Nothing so high that it can stand against him. Verse 5, the the sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. The sea in the Bible often means the the literal sea, but also uh, what is chaotic and out of control, maybe even evil. This is saying that God knows it, he is over it. He is the king above all things. The instruction Therefore, to the people back when this psalm was written, is the exact same instruction for us today. Join the noisy celebration of the one true God, the only one, the creator. No power can possibly stand against him. Nothing is beyond his reach. He made and controls all things without exception. If the world was one that is a sort of equal battleground before lots and lots of gods, and everything is fighting for control, then it would be a scary place. But the world is not like that. There is evil out there, yes. But it is only the one God who is in control. The king over all. So that's the instruction. Come and join in the noisy praise of the people of God. Let's just think through some of those practical questions that this might raise within us. Because what if I don't feel joy? What if I don't feel like joining in with the joyous praise? What if I see the praise going on around me and I don't feel joy? You've sort of just rushed out of the door Sunday morning, navigated the tube with the kids, realised that you haven't sorted anything for lunch, and the pastor is telling you you're supposed to be joyful, guys. It's a rough time, isn't it? If we're not feeling that. If the, the songs somehow are making us feel joy. There's a few reasons why that can be the case. Uh, one is that we're actually seeking for our joy ultimately elsewhere. We seek ultimate meaning, satisfaction, joy from something other than God. Our, our money, our family, our career. We turn up on Sunday morning, we don't feel joy, and we wonder why. The answer is that God has to be the ultimate source of joy that we look to. But if, even if that's the case, even if uh, God is our, our ultimate source of joy, what do we do when we're sad? 
but you're not actually feeling a sort of happy, bubbling up joy. There can be any number of reasons why you or the people sitting around you are having the very worst week of their life. They're feeling uh, so terribly low and incredibly sad, but one where joy feels like a distant memory. But that is where God being our ultimate joy takes us out of ourselves slightly. We are, when we are down, we're not without a solid foundation. That promise that one day every tear will be wiped from the eyes of God's people, every sorrow uh, turns to joy. It's all because of the sure and certain fact of the of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. It can still feel very, very hard to come to church when we're down, when we're low, uh, when we're sad. Uh, but we go into church armed with the historical fact that's spelled out in God's word that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, uh, that he was raised and rules over all. And we look forward to the day when we worship him face to face. But it can still feel so hard coming to church joining God's people in praise. So don't be afraid if we're here this morning struggling to find joy in the world. Allow the people of God singing around you to minister to you. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I'll say rejoice. It was a command to a church that had very real struggles going on but it was to be rejoicing in the Lord. And so, if you're feeling like you're at the very end of your strength this morning, it's the Lord's strength that we get to draw. And so, as we saw in our catechism, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's the Lord's strength, not our own. It's the rejoicing in the Lord that makes the difference. Rejoice in the Lord. The joy isn't located in us but it is located in God. But we need each other's help if we're to see this, don't we? And just look for a second how corporate this psalm is. It begins, let us sing, or let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. It's plural all the way through. So if you're here this morning, you're not on your own. But in fact, we're here together, and we're here praising our God together, all the way through, again and again and again. It's plural. So we're struggling. Our joy feels like it's gone. We get to come to the Lord, join in with his people, and allow them this morning to help us to pray. Another question, just quickly worth thinking about, though, is... uh, does the joyous worship of the Lord have a certain aesthetic that goes along with it? Uh, the shouting for joy, the, the joyful noise, does it involve uh, the sort of jumping and clapping that you might get in some churches? You sometimes even see churches where sort of the congregation has their arms in the air for the whole song. <clears throat> that is their joyous expression of praise. But it doesn't take a genius to sort of uh, look at our church family, and uh, there aren't many folk who are uh, jumping up and down during our songs, right? There's all sorts 
of reasons why you may not jump, clap, or wave your arms in church. One is just a, a temperament personality thing. Now, some folk wouldn't even do that at a football match, right? But it's worth having a think. Uh, me, myself, what does it look like for me to make a joyful noise to the Lord at church? And uh, what does that uh, look like? It doesn't have to look like exuberant uh, sort of shouting and jumping. But it's worth wondering, am I involved in this praise in a joyful way? That's the first half. Sing to the Lord, for he is a great God. But our second half, we've got to sing to the Lord for his grace, and now we've got to bow down and listen to his voice. You know, this psalm is a very famous psalm. If you uh, follow a sort of Anglican prayer book, you'll actually pray it every single morning. But you know that lots of churches, when they pray this psalm, they leave off the second half of the psalm. The first half is so joy-filled. Come and join in. The second half, bow down and listen to his voice. It often gets cut. Verse 6. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So the first half, oh, come. The second half, oh, come. Alongside a joyful noise, there is a deep, humbling, bowing down. The word worship in verse 6 almost means to lie face down in the dirt, bow, kneel. The joyous people of God humbly kneel. Our joyous singing goes hand in hand with our hearts and even our bodies willingly submitting before the God we praise. (coughs) Apart from the fact that we're often quite cramped on the bar chair and that the floor isn't very comfy. Here, there's nothing to stop us uh, from kneeling. It's not something that is required for us to be doing in uh, to properly worship. But if we've never knelt before the Lord in worship, we might want to try it. If we never kneel before our God, we might be ignoring that we are both body and soul. And so it might be worth involving our body in our worship of God, involving our body with the attitude of our heart. An example of uh, how you might do this might even just be in uh, your own uh, prayer time. Sometimes when I'm losing focus in prayer, my mind wandering, it, it happens a lot. Sometimes kneeling is just actually very helpful, just to bring back a bit of focus. Get on knees. I don't know why it feels more intentional to kneel before the Lord when focus returns. It's more than just kneeling to pray here, though, in this psalm. It's a humbling ourselves. It's an admitting before our holy God that we can only need. What's the reason for this? Well, after verse 1, praise the Lord, we had the reasons in verses 3 and 5, being the creator God. Here, can you spot the reason? It begins in verse 6. He is our maker. Not just our creator and sustainer, but our maker. In that he makes his people, he sustains and looks after them. He is the maker of the collective people of God. Here this morning, he made this gathering. As he is the maker of the people of God, he's the one who took them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, called them to live in relationship with himself. Verse 7 almost copies that promise, 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people, that he promises in Exodus 6, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 7, and so on. When the people of God praise God for this, it is, he is our God. We are his people. He is the shepherd of his people. We are his flock. He made his people. He shepherds his people. So in our thoughts, in our very being, we need to realize that God is the creator of all things, and that includes us here this morning, the creator of this gathering. The God we worship when we sing and when we bow down corporately is the God who is in charge, not just of our lives, but of all things. And when we praise God for all his glorious perfection and might, it lifts our eyes and humbles our hearts. We realise we're not perfect. We realise we're not the creator. We realise we're not the sustainer of all things, and indeed not the sustainer of God's people. But we so often don't actually behave like that, do we? Our hearts desire uh, that we would uh, love to be the ones on the thrones of our lives, the ones in charge, the ones who are not humbling themselves, but indeed have other people humbling themselves before us. We want to be the ones in the centre circles of our own life. Each one of us, our natural instinct is not to kneel before God. The Bible calls that instinct sin. Our uh, fallen nature. We don't like admitting that we're wrong at the best of times. Our instinct is to sort of hide our wrongdoing and faults, but in the joyous worship of God, a holy mirror sort of gets held up, in, held up in front of us. We have no choice but to acknowledge we're not God. We do sin, and we must humble ourselves and repent. Do you see how this song, the pattern of what's going on here, is actually reflected in how we normally do our worship service here on a Sunday morning at the barge. Uh, we didn't uh, do it this morning, but because uh, we're taking the Lord's Supper shortly. But in a normal week, we begin in praise, and then we have a prayer of confession. That reminder that we are indeed sinful, and we do indeed need the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's reflected, that's drawn from this psalm, that pattern of worship. The humble bound down shouldn't leave us unchanged. It should leave us, lead us to an obedience, to a hearing of his voice. Bow down and hear his voice. The end of verse 7, the psalm sort of changes its tone slightly. Today, if you hear his voice, today, don't delay, today, no matter if we think we've heard it all before, today, the people who were told to make a joyful noise are now told, listen up. And then the psalmist gives them a history lesson. Don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on a day at Massa in the wilderness. This history lesson, it's saying here, Remember when the people of God were at that place that was nicknamed Strife, Meribah. And what happened there in Exodus 17? Uh, and can you recall the place that was called Testing, Massa? And what happened there in Numbers 20? 
In those places, the people of God hardened their hearts against him. And so that they resisted God's work. They may have just been praising God as they were in, in Exodus 16, sort of singing loudly even. But then their hearts ended up hardened against him, away from God. Verse 9 says that these events, from God's perspective, were when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They tested God. They mattered God. Though they had seen his work. They'd seen his rescue from Egypt, his provision and miracles. And they wouldn't trust him. The consequence of this, their hard hearts, was that God was rightly angry with them. And for 40 years, a whole generation, they turned away from him. So that none of that generation would reach the promised land. None of them would get to stop wandering the wilderness. None of them would enter into God's What does it mean for us today to hear God's voice? Because that's the same instruction. If the same instruction has been all the way through for God's people then and God's people now, what does it mean to hear God's voice? It means to keep believing the gospel, the good news of God. So think about our pattern of worship. We follow this pattern of the psalm. We praise, we have confession, and then we open up the word of God. Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verse 7 through to uh, 4, verse 13, picks up Psalm 95. It basically preaches it to New Testament believers. And saying that uh, as New Testament believers, we need to hear this psalm. We need to hear his voice. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 puts, For the good news came to us just as to them. Essentially saying, the good news that came of of God's rescue to the people who hardened their hearts against God, that good news has come to us. To hear God's voice means then to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for you rose and is risen and reigning. And his word here contains all that is sufficient for salvation. The warning in the psalm then is therefore that same warning to us. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. (laughs) To have a hard heart is to have a heart that does not believe the gospel, that does not believe God's word. And even think about it like biologically, purely. A, a hard heart is a dead heart. It cannot work. But a living heart is soft. We need to have a soft heart towards God's word. And as the writer of Hebrews preaches this warning to the new covenant believers, the Christians, and the rest that the promised land points us towards is that greater, deeper, eternal rest that is coming to God's people. It's a new creation. But to get there, the true people of God are marked by obedience. Hearing the word of God, humbly listening, believing the gospel, 
and living a life of God-trusting obedience, not hardening their hearts. Maybe uh, we should turn back to Hebrews 3 uh, that we read earlier in the service, so we can see just a little bit of explanation from this together. Why don't you turn with me uh, in your Bibles, and we'll just see what some of this means for us, and some of these questions that are raised for it. So Hebrews 3, page 1205 in the Church Bible. You can see from verse 7, the psalm is quoted, and then uh, this explanation uh, in, in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Saying, To not have a hard heart means that you keep going in the gospel. And that is the unimpressive side of how what we do here on a Sunday morning changes our life. What we do here on a Sunday morning, we praise, we confess, we hear the word open to us. And that helps us to keep going. And so then, we keep going. It's unimpressive, isn't it? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, they need to fall away from the living God. There are some questions that have kind of come from this, aren't there? Let's come look at this and say, well, hang on, I thought that at this church we believe that uh, once you're uh, saved, you're always saved, and, and you can't fall away. Yes, that is, is absolutely. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. But how do we know that we truly believe, therefore, and they're truly saved? Well, the answer is... We keep going in obedience to God. A faithfully walking, not having a hard heart, but a soft heart that believes the gospel and seeks to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the evidence. If we fall away, it all just proves that we have an unbelieving heart. So what should we do? Hebrews 3.13 exhorts one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful and hardening. Uh, corporately, we need to be uh, encouraging one another against sin. This doesn't mean sort of telling off or feeling superior to one another. It means encouraging one another and helping one another to avoid sin. And to warn one another that the consistent indulgence in sin only leads to a hardening of the heart that's resistant to the gospel. So it's dead. If we hear his voice, we need to not hear it. We need to not harden our hearts. It looks like the preaching of the word, not just on a Sunday morning, but in your everyday life, in your uh, growth groups to one another, on your WhatsApp group chat to one another, encouraging one another from the word. Think about what this means practically when it comes to sin in the everyday. Maybe we realise we've been living a lie, telling ourselves and others something that is wrong. To harden our hearts would be to double down and tell more lies and cover tracks. But to hear the voice of the Lord would look like understanding that we are bearing false witness and need to come clean to ourselves and to God. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe it comes to relationships. You're sleeping with somebody who you're not married to. If you're not married, to harden your heart would be to think, well, it's not hurting anyone. And maybe uh, we'll get married one day, so it's probably fine. 
if you are married, to harden your heart, which would be to think, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? I don't want to hurt my spouse. Maybe I'll just end things quietly and not tell anyone. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe when it comes to pride, the satisfaction of comparison to others, thinking more of ourselves, to harden our hearts would be to project that image of humility. Get everyone thinking that we're humble. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness <coughs> of sin. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is how it makes a difference to our everyday life. We come together in the joyful praise of God. We come together and bow down before him, humbling ourselves, and then we listen to his voice. And we we exhort one another, as long as it is called today, to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but instead to pursue Christ and to be conformed to his image. Shortly we're going to pray, sing, and then share the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is that reminder of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. Uh, His body broken for the forgiveness of sins. His blood shed that we may be made clean. Brought back into the relationship with the Lord. We remember that. And as we do, do not harden your heart. If there's sin that you feel needs to be confessed, now is the time to bring it before the Lord and confess that before we remember what he did for us on the cross. Let's take a moment and in the quiet of our hearts reflect on what we've heard and then I'll lead us in prayer.